0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Wednesday, June 20th, the Washington Post gathered policymakers, healthcare industry leaders, public health experts, and others for an important series of discussions about what is behind rising healthcare costs in the U.S. and what can be done to reduce the burden for all Americans. In this segment, Democratic Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado and Republican Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana examine the latest proposals to reduce the cost of health care and discuss how to keep costs in check over the long term. Let's listen.
1: Hello, good afternoon everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We have uh, two senators here with us who are uh, members of the Senate's health and finance committees. We have Senator Bill Cassidy and Senator uh, Michael Bennett. We're gonna be talking about latest proposals to reduce healthcare costs. um, And we're gonna discuss how to keep those costs in check long term. We just wanna remind the audience that you can tweet your questions using the hashtag uh, health202 and I'll be checking those questions and hopefully taking some from the audience. but before we begin talking about health care costs, um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you both about the news of the day. And we've just gotten word that the president has signed an executive order um, overturning the policy of separating um, families at the border. <laughs> and, and I first, generally, just want to get both of your reactions uh, to, the, to the president doing that this afternoon.
2: That's a good thing. Uh, after Hurricane Katrina, there was researchers at LSU Health Science Center that found separation between a mother and her new, new or near newly born child actually had an enduring impact. And so, just approaching it as a physician, if you will, I think it's good policy. Uh, approaching it as an American, I think it's good policy. We still have to secure our border. We have to make sure that this doesn't give folks a, a, a way to circumvent our law. But, but as regards separating children from their parents, it's something we should
3: not be doing. I, I agree with Bill. I, I would add, and we may not agree on some things today, but I would add that it, to me it, it was just shameful because this was a manufactured crisis. that didn't have to happen. We have enough in this country to, to keep <laughs> us occupied without causing these kinds of problems. And, uh, and we sent a, single, a signal out to the entire world that in the name of the American people, we were separating children from their parents. And I think we need to grapple with that. I've got three daughters at home. I dropped one off today on my way to work. And I said, I just want to apologize to you because the, the country that I grew up in would never do this.
1: So Senators, President Trump had said previously to today that this was a congressional problem, that Congress needed to take care of this. So I wonder if you both think that Congress should be responsible for coming up with some kind of long-term solution to handle families that come across the border illegally?
2: Yes. I mean, that is something which is going to take deliberation. Uh, and, um, and I do think it's going to have a more enduring um, positive impact if it is something which is bipartisan. And it won't be reversed by someone's executive order next time. So simple answer, yes.
3: So I would just add on on to what Bill just said, which is we have to get to a place in our politics again where we're actually legislating to create enduring results. This idea of going back and forth every two years just because of who won an election, that's something new in our politics. It's not the way it used to operate. And um, the founders of this country who were creating the first real democratic republic that humankind ever had knew that at the heart of that republic we would have disagreements. That was the whole point, to not have a tyrant tell you what to think. And we behave in these legislative halls like you can't make a compromise that's principled, or that any compromise is unprincipled. And that's another way of saying we'll never get anything done until there's one party rule. And on the subject of immigration, I would say as part of the Gang of Eight in 2013 that wrote a bipartisan bill, that secured our borders, that provided internal security, that created a pathway to citizenship for 11 million people here that were undocumented, that dealt with our agriculture workers, that dealt with high tech. That was a bipartisan effort that took seven months, got a 68 vote bipartisan vote on the floor of the Senate, never saw the light of day in the House of Representatives because of the tyranny of the Freedom Caucus. And if the president would like to Find a model that really does secure our border and does it in a humane way. Uh, there's a lot to recommend that piece of legislation.
1: Senators, thank you. So now we will move on to health care, which is why all of you are here. Um, in one minute, I want you each to defend Senator Bennett. Why is the ACA now Trump Care? And Senator Cassidy, defend why it's still Obamacare.
3: Well, I I would say this instead. My constituents are incredibly unhappy with the way they, their lives intersect with the, America's health care system. They're incredibly unhappy with it before the Affordable Care Act was passed, after the Affordable Care Act was passed, and they've been made more unhappy by the stuff that Donald Trump has done. I don't know what it is anymore, but what I do know is we, have, we, as, we, we, it, we as an industrialized country, are spending more than twice any other industrialized country is spending, and making people's lives in misery as, you know, in the way they intersect with the system. So I hope together we can drop, whether it's Trump Care or Obamacare, and work together to deliver a model of health care that's more affordable, that covers everybody in America, and that continues to provide the kind of innovation that, um, that's been so important to our uh, medical history.
2: You know, as Michael did, I'm going to restructure your question just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a physician. Now, for 25 years, you try and put the doc, the patient, in the middle of the room, and everything is to serve that patient. I worked in a public hospital for the uninsured, and I found that when politicians control health care policy, the system lines up to serve the politician or the academician or the person who just seems to know more than the patient. When the patient is in control of the dollar or whatever, then the system lines up to serve her. If you go to a woman's hospital, that woman's hospital is competing for that woman, and you walk in and it is an experience designed to help someone who's expecting to have a wonderful experience. For example, having concierge parking so that if she's pregnant nine months, she doesn't have to come through the parking lot. So I think what is wrong with the ACA and the enduring negative legacy is there's a sense that power was taken from the patient and her physician, and it was brought to Washington, DC, and she is told what she must buy, how much she must pay, with other restrictions. If you can't afford the insurance, you're going to be penalized, um, uh, on and on. Now, to that extent, uh, there is an ongoing, I totally agree, dissatisfaction. And that dissatisfaction, I think, is driven because the patient feels like the power has left her, and it is now with someone whom she does not even know.
3: I would say that someone is more likely to be a private insurance company that is keeping her on the phone, not paying her claim, and has people who are able to do that for hour upon hour after hour before she has the opportunity to go and do something else. Which, And I'm not disagreeing with you when I say that. I'm just adding to your thesis.
2: There is enough out there that you can pick this example or that. It could be a pharmacist who's not allowed contractually to tell a patient that she would be better off paying cash for a drug than paying her deductible because the PBM tells the pharmacist he loses the contract if he tells her what's in her best interest. Or it could be the individual mandate until repealed that tells the family in Louisiana paying $40,000 after-tax dollars for insurance and then with the $10,000 copay, $50,000 before they see benefit, that if you don't buy insurance, we're going to penalize you. There's a lot not to like. Uh, If you give the patient the power, though, then things begin to serve her, and I think she begins to like it more.
3: You know, in a way, I think Bill has put his finger on exactly the most legitimate critique of the Affordable Care Act, which I would hear, which was from people living in rural parts of my state, in particular, who are saying, There is no competition for insurance where I live. The insurance is very expensive. The deductible is very high, and yet you're telling me that I have to buy that for my family. That doesn't seem fair, and it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair to me. But there were other aspects of that law that were very important, like um, establishing a threshold of essential health benefits so that people knew that the insurance was worth something. I hear some politicians on the floor of the Senate talking about the opportunity to buy lousy insurance as freedom. You know, they describe it as freedom. Well, it's an opportunity to buy lousy insurance. And part of the difficulty we have when it comes to health insurance is that if we don't find ways of pooling people into large enough pools, you end up in a place where healthy people go in one direction and and can buy cheap insurance and take the risk that they that they do and people that are sicker end up costing more and more and more and that is at the heart, I think, of the dilemma of how to solve that, bridge that in our country.
2: Great conversation, if I may, sure. just to say that I uh, totally agree with you. Wouldn't it be great if we could say, okay, you have to have these benefits because it puts us all in the same pool, but, but if you can't afford the insurance, then you don't have the insurance anyway and you're not in the pool. A young medical resident I was working with after the law passed, I was still seeing patients. He goes, You know, I used to pay 800 bucks a month for my catastrophic policy, and now I'm up to 3,200. Now, probably he's now up to 6,000. Now, when you're 28 years old and you're paying that much money for insurance, um, you effectively cross subsidizing other people for policies that you don't think you're going to need then that just becomes problematic, and you can no longer afford.
3: I don't, and I I think that I agree agree completely with that. We probably disagree on the cause of that expense, but that's okay. We should figure out how to solve it uh, in this country because it's unaffordable to people.
1: And and to that end, Senator Cassidy, uh, the Justice Department said it's not going to defend the pre-existing condition uh, language in the ACA. And so I wonder, without that in place, how do you, what is your idea to keep sicker people from paying you know, exorbitant prices for health insurance?
2: If you're speaking about my idea in particular? Sure. Yeah. The thing I proposed on a couple different occasions, first with Susan Collins, then with Lindsey Graham, is that you allow states to pool their individual market with their Medicaid expansion market. Now the problem with, well, insurance is about the law of big numbers. The more people you have, if one person gets sick and you spread that expensive illness over hundreds of thousands of people, it doesn't even cause a blip in the premium. But if you have a very small little pool and you get somebody sick, it raises the rates for everybody. Now, in my state, Louisiana, we have 400,000 people in the Medicaid expansion and maybe 100,000 people in the exchange, or maybe less than that. If you combine those two, you suddenly got a much bigger pool one person's illness spread among many is much more affordable. We need to restore the law of big numbers to insurance. Uh, people were rejecting our policies. Not, I don't think they ever thought them through. But it's effectively what Ron Wyden was speaking about when he said we should have 13, 32, 11, 15 combined waivers under the ACA.
3: We just made it easier. And it's
2: about restoring the law of big numbers.
1: Senator Bennett, what would you say to that?
3: I don't, I honestly, I don't remember the details of the legislation except that it cut Medicaid a lot in my state, and that was it one... It didn't,
2: th- but that's okay.
3: Well, it, well, that is not the view that my rural hospitals had about that bill, uh, who believed they'd have to shut down as a re- result of it. Um, and I, I would have to say, in the absence of people in Washington having the imagination to figure out some solutions on this, one of the things that has been a success from our point of view in Colorado was the Medicaid expansion because um, it it really dramatically reduced the number of uninsured people in our state. The challenge that we continue to face, I mean we face the broad challenges that Bill was talking about, but the challenges we continue to face are people that are, make too much money to be on Medicaid but not enough money to buy private insurance and that's a lot of people. I mean there are huge percentages of people in um, our rural mountain communities, or our ski towns, and places like that, where people, as I say, are making too much to be on Medicaid, but not enough to have private insurance, and we've got to figure that out. The rest of the world, this is not a pain point in the rest of the world. People don't worry about going bankrupt in the rest of the world because of health care. They don't worry about government saying we're not we're going to allow insurance companies that don't cover pre-existing conditions in the rest of the world. Somehow. Only here do we have to worry about these things.
1: And Senator Bennett, you have um, embraced an idea called um, Medicare X, right? Which is, um, I'm wondering why you've chosen to support that over a more progressive, like a Medicare for all, like Senator Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders has been pushing.
3: Well, I wouldn't describe my proposal as less progressive. Okay. Uh, I think it may be more doable. And that there should be a virtue in that. I mean, I I believe that we should have universal coverage in the United States. I think it makes economic sense for the United States, and I think it makes moral sense for the United States to have universal coverage. And we should have passed a public option in the original Affordable Care Act bill, and we didn't. This is a a bill called Medicare X. That's the sexiest name of any legislation that I've ever introduced. It It is not, it is not, it is a, plan that would be administered by Medicare, so it would be the benefit of having a much lower administrative cost of Medicare than in a private plan, Uh, you would pay in a a premium and you'd you'd have coverage from this public option. We start it in rural parts of America where there's only one or no insurer, and we say that you can then pool everybody. Bill was talking about the importance of pools. There are counties in my state where no private insurer will ever make a market because there aren't enough people to do it. This allows us to pool it nationally. It allows us to use the Medicare uh, uh, reimbursement uh, structure and provider network, so you don't have to set any of that up. Uh, and, uh, and over three years, we, we make it available to everybody in the country, and over five, we make it available to small businesses in this country. I think it's the kind of uh, thing that people really are looking for as they struggle with the kind of private insurance uh, hikes that Bill Cassidy was talking about. We weren't ready for that discussion 10 years ago, but I think we are ready for it now.
1: Would anyone, if that was an option, would people still buy insurance? No. but Private insurance?
3: No. Well, so, sure.
1: So what would be the sure. incentive to buy oh, private absolutely. insurance?
3: People who want private insurance could buy their private insurance. Then that's one of the issues with the single-payer bills is that you remember the Affordable Care Act when a few people lost their insurance, thousands of people lost their insurance, and all hell broke loose because... The, President Obama had said, "If you like your insurance, you can keep it." You remember that? There are 180 million people in this country that are that have private insurance through their employer, and 80 percent of the people say they like their insurance. There are 20 million people that are on Medicare Advantage in the United States; they love Medicare Advantage. And so, my bill is not about taking that away. It's about giving people an additional option if they want. Uh, and and I think it's. I think it's absolutely true that different people in different parts of the country are going to want different things, and so why not give them a choice?
1: So, Senator Cassidy, why not do that?
2: Medicare for all will be Medicare for none. Medicare is going bankrupt, according to the actuaries, in eight years. Now, what we know is that if you open this up, the folks that join will typically be sicker, with a higher cost experience. Um, I don't think that Michael or other proponents are suggesting that we charge them more. So they will come in having, uh, and believe me, this has happened with the individual exchanges according to my insurance companies. Uh, people who are on group plans, who are sicker, are encouraged to go on to the public option, if you will, in this case, uh, the individual market, but in this, in the current case, but in this coming case, Medicare X. And so you have your sicker patients in. Medicare, which is going bankrupt in eight years, according to the actuaries will suddenly have an influx of more expensive patients. Now, I suppose you could raise taxes dramatically to pay for this, and I assume that is part of the plan. Because otherwise, it won't be going bankrupt in eight years, it'll be going bankrupt in four years. And so Medicare for all will be Medicare for none. Uh, So, and by the way, again, I'm a doc. I worked in a public hospital system for 25 years trying to bring health care to those who did not have. Politicians overpromise and they underfund. And that's why Medicare is going bankrupt in eight years. And the idea that even though we would have to raise taxes in order to pay for this, that it would be adequately funded is just not borne out by experience.
3: So let me just be clear that my proposal is not Medicare for all, it's Medicare X. It is a plan administered by Medicare, not the Medicare system. The Congressional Budget Office in the, during the health care debate scored a public option designed like mine. It actually saved $160 billion for the federal government. It is not, there are no taxes raised. People do have to pay a premium, uh, but that's modeled in the CBO report. Second, yeah, if on under- Medicare, on Medicare, he's quite right. We are collecting, uh, we are collecting $1 for every $3 we spend on Medicare largely because George Bush passed Medicare Part D at the end of his deficit-inducing presidency and uh, didn't pay for it. And we have not managed the cost of drugs at all uh, since then, and the result is that we've got a mess on our hands, which we have to find a way to fix. Although Part D is not paid for by the Part A trust
2: fund, and A trust fund is what is said to be going bankrupt. But I accept your also. The Part D is also a drain. All right. But anyway, the Part A trust fund is the one that's going down, Um, and uh, we could elaborate more. But I think I made my point.
1: So, so Senator to to Senator Cassidy's point, how do you pay for it? A a Medicare X or a
3: with the premiums with the premiums, and that would be enough to pay for that. Would be more than enough. It saves 160 billion dollars according to the Congressional Budget Office because people would be opting to buy that instead of private insurance which you know then we were paying high subsidies for the benefit of insurance companies uh, instead of doing this and you know in places in my state where uh, uh, 10 years ago people might have said don't bring that bolshevik experiment into my county uh, people are now saying thank you for thinking of us first because we have no options for insurance And you got a bunch of politicians in Washington who are making excuses every day for why they can't fix our health care system, not to mention a bunch of other things that we should be working on.
1: (laughs) Senator Cassie, you tried last year. um, You and Senator Graham put together legislation to repeal and replace uh, the Affordable Care Act. Um, The majority leader has uh, essentially said there's not going to be any votes on health care, at least before the August recess. Do you have any reason um, to hold out hope for a repeal bill? And do you think it's something that the Republicans should still be pursuing?
2: Let me, uh, again, reconstruct your question a little sure. bit. Arguably, when Republicans repealed the individual mandate, we got rid of that which was considered most noxious about the Affordable Care Act. And by the way, the, affordable, the individual mandate did not impact premiums, according to Jonathan Gruber, the author of the Affordable Care Act, and indeed this year we're actually seeing lower premium increases in states, and this is the first year in which the individual mandate has been repealed. So you can argue that Republicans actually have been able to achieve part of their goal and that which the public felt most noxious. But we got to do something on health care. We've got to. <laughs> the the, the Health care costs are exploding. One thing we are absolutely in agreement on, is the need to lower health care costs. It's important for the people sitting around the family table, the kitchen table. It's important for state governments, who who have expanded Medicaid. Now, Medicaid is cannibalizing their budgets. And it's important for the Medicare trust fund. We can hopefully extend the life of it if we can reduce those costs. Now I would love to partner on some bipartisan legislation that would help lower health care costs. It might be the price transparency bill that Michael and I are working on as one example. It might be where you would allow states to combine their their, uh, individual market with their Medicaid expansion population to create a pool with more numbers and therefore lowering costs by as much as 20% by taking out the uncertainty associated with small risk pools. That would be another solution. I can promise you if we do that, people are going to say, oh, Graham Cassidy 2.0. Um, I can't help that. All I know is we've got to do something to lower healthcare costs, the cost of insurance, the cost of the procedure itself, and I will talk with anyone in order to achieve that goal. And it-
3: and I, agree, I completely agree. I mean, Bill and I sent a uh, uh, letter out asking interested parties to comment on how we could create transparency in our healthcare system because, you know, I used to be a school superintendent before I got here, and I never thought I'd see incentives and disincentives more unaligned from the stuff we were trying to achieve than I did there. And I found it in America's healthcare system. And a big part of the problem is that for, I think, too many parts of the system, opacity has become a business model. And the result of that is nobody knows what anything costs. Sometimes a person can figure out what they've been charged, maybe, but, but, but not what things actually cost. And there you don't have to have a debate between Democrats and Republicans about what the role of government should be, what it shouldn't be. This is just saying, let's understand what the market is and see where we can reduce costs. And anybody who's spent a night in a hospital or, uh, uh, you know, spent three hours on the telephone with an insurance company knows how much, how much cost there is in the system that could be taken out.
1: I did, and I, this panel went by so quickly. There are so many healthcare policy questions to still be asked, but I did want to acknowledge that the two of you are working on this healthcare transparency issue together in a bipartisan fashion. And I know that you're looking for answers from the, from the industry and people in the community. And I'm wondering, where the process stands, uh, what you've learned so far, if you can tell us in a quick uh, 20 seconds.
2: (laughs) We've gotten 800 pages of feedback, as Michael mentioned. Uh, Our staffs are meeting together to try and come together. There's about six of us, but there's a broader group who are interested. Uh, If hopefully we can get an agreement among the six to advance legislation, um, ideally that would be the case because we want it to be bipartisan. Uh, But already we have some components of it, for example, working with uh, Susan Collins, Claire McCaskill, no, Debbie Stabenow on eliminating Gag clauses, as one example, where the pharmacist could tell the patient that she can save money by paying cash. So that's one aspect of it. So we're bit by bit, but hopefully, whole piece ultimately.
1: Fantastic. Did you have anything to add, Senator?
3: To the only thing I'd add is that I think it pr- creates the opportunity for us to move beyond the kind of the debate that we started here with, which is, is this Obamacare not Obamacare? What is it? And just focus our attention where it should be focused, which is on h- how we can create a healthcare system in this country that actually works for the American people because the one we have right now is not working well enough.
1: Great. Well, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you, Colby. We really appreciate it. Thanks That's all we know. have, the time we have.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.